Amen. What a song to finish on as we continue in summer in the Psalms, as we talk about this morning, when foundations crumble, we can say it is well with my soul. If you will uh, remain standing with me and turn to the book in the book of Psalms and go to Psalm chapter 11, as Pastor Bruce continues in summer in the Psalm, when foundations crumble, and he uses Psalm 11 as the text for the sermon this morning. If you need a Bible, there are a few Bibles in front of you. You can turn and find it in the Pew Bible. Once again, it is Psalm chapter 11, if you will follow along as I read. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark and upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let Him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word and your son, the solid rock on which we can stand. Be with Pastor Bruce as he brings a message this morning. Thank you for his preparation, his diligence to prepare it for us. Help us to have open hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Unicorns, those mythical creatures, unicorns, my granddaughter, I should say our granddaughter, my wife and I's granddaughter Adeline, she absolutely loves those mythical creatures of unicorns. For some reason, she is just infatuated with unicorns. Perhaps it's because she has, I don't know, this wild imagination of hers. You should hear some of the stories that she tells and just kind of makes up. And although she is fully aware that unicorns are Well, they're not real. She doesn't care that they're not real. Because when you're four years old, it's rather fun to live in a make-believe world. It's fun when the story can be whatever you want the story to be in your make-believe world. But that's not true for us here this morning, is it? We don't live in a make-believe world, do we? We live in a real world with real people, with real problems, and real pain. And that's where the Psalms live as well. The Psalms live where you live, and yet they don't leave us there. That's why I love the Psalms. That's why we're taking time to do this series in the summer in the Psalms, which we have typically done about every four to five years. And this is the third time we have gone through a series in the Psalms. In fact, the Psalms, they deal honestly with real issues in life. They They deal honestly with with questions about life, questions about God and pain, and yet they always point us back to the Lord as the ultimate hope and solution and reason that we have. As one pastor put it, the Psalms serve as a bridge between the pain of life and the power of God. And that's exactly what we see again here in Psalm 11, in another lament psalm written by David. In fact, this is now the second lament psalm we've looked at. We looked at one last Sunday as well, and you might be wondering what are lament psalms, and 
They're simply a lament is, is how we as Christ followers express our, our grief and our pain and our suffering to God. And we do so in prayer. In fact, the prayer of pain that, that leads us to trust is, is what we find here in these lament psalms written by David. And if you want more about what lament psalms, I encourage you to go onto our church website. We are lifebridge.com and and there, go to the message resources, and Pastor Chris actually taught a sermon on lament songs back in 2019 when we were going through, again, a summer series in the Psalms. And you can find out more about lament psalms in, in just what they are. This particular lament psalm of David, we don't know the exact setting in which David was facing, in which he wrote this psalm. What we do know is the setting of the psalm comes straight from a crisis in David's life. But we don't have any other background to go with that crisis that he's facing. So we don't know the precise situation that David was facing when he wrote this psalm, but but we don't need to know the exact setting in order to face the question here in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So whatever the crisis was that David was facing, it was a very desperate situation for him. In fact, we might phrase the question of verse 3 this way. When the wicked attack, when the foundations are crumbling, when everything seems to be falling apart in your life, what can the righteous do? Now, now this is not a question that David himself is asking, but rather it's a question that is, is being posed to David by his friends, by, by perhaps even his counselors, people around him. If the foundations are destroyed, what, David, can you do? But what does that mean? What are they talking about here? Well, this word foundations, it's a metaphor. And it's a metaphor for the order of society. It's actually translated as pillars later on in Psalm 75, verse 3. And so it represents the established institutions and in social order of a society. One author adds this insight when he writes, From the context of the psalm itself, it at least means a time when all the normal protections and securities of God's people disappear. It may indicate a time when the social fabric of life is disintegrating and all the glue seems to be going out of whatever normal civil order there seems to be. Today's English version Bible puts it this way. There is nothing a good man can do when everything falls apart. And that is kind of the attitude. That's the mindset of David's friends here. This is a a hopeless situation. It's a hopeless question that's being asked by some fearful people in a very desperate situation. David's friends look around in fear, and they basically tell him that he should run for the mountains. It's all over, David. What you're facing is too hopeless. Just run and hide. There's nothing else you can do here. After all, they reasoned within themselves If the wicked are attacking, if the foundations are crumbling around you, and if everything is falling apart, what can the righteous do? And and their answer seems to be nothing. But Psalm 11 is actually David's answer to the panic that gripped his friends 
when the foundations were crumbling. Notice David's decisive response. In fact, this is the main point of Psalm 11. And that is the righteous, here's what they can do. Here's what they do do. The righteous trust in the Lord. Why? For he will protect perfectly and he will judge righteously. And so in this psalm, David declares his confidence in God while the world seems to be falling apart around him. David, in other words, he shows us where you and I can turn when the very foundations of society are crumbling. David's response was not to run in fear, but rather to trust in the Lord who will protect perfectly and judge righteously. So let's unpack this for the next few minutes of what David's faith here that we see. His his response, his answer to his friends and counselors who were counseling him to run in fear. First of all, trust in the Lord. Why? Because he is our safe refuge in times of trouble. Now, it's rather interesting. In fact, it's rather significant and important that David opens this psalm with a bold declaration of faith in verse 1. He immediately, the first words that he pins in the psalm are what? In the Lord I take refuge. Now, all throughout Scripture, and especially here in the book of Psalms, we read that the Lord himself is a refuge for his people. Just one example of this is later on in Psalm chapter 18. There in verse 2, David himself again writes, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield in the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So a refuge here is a place where we run for protection and safety. We run to the Lord because why? He is our rock. He's our fortress. He's our deliverer. He's our shield in a stronghold. We run to the Lord because he loves us. We run to him because our Lord is righteous. He is just. We run to the Lord because he's powerful and wise. We run to him because he is our God and we are his people. This is the faith that David has in his God. And it's out of this faith now that David chooses to do something in response to the foundations crumbling around him. Notice this, David's faith, and it's for these reasons, David chooses to take shelter in God for protection and safety against the wicked. Now again, it's significant that David begins with this statement of trust. In the Lord, I take refuge. And so from the very beginning, from the very outset, before any trouble is even mentioned here in Psalm 11, David has already settled the matter in his heart. He's already made his decision. In the Lord, I take refuge. In fact, the verb tense that is used here by David when he says, I take refuge, it actually stresses the fact that David's trust in the Lord is something that has been a fact of his life throughout his whole life. In other words, his trusting in the Lord as his refuge has continued throughout his life and is continuing even here in Psalm 11. In other words, David 
has taken refuge in the Lord. He is taking refuge in the Lord, and he will continue to take refuge in the Lord. This is David's decision in the past. It's his decision in the present, and it will be. It is his decision in the future. In the Lord, I take refuge. Now, just think with me about that, because that has radical implications for our lives even today. Some of you here are facing, or you have faced, overwhelming times of trouble. And if you haven't yet, then just praise the Lord. Give a shout out to God. But I hate to tell you, you will sooner or later. It's bound to happen. You will face times of trouble when it seems like everything is falling apart. And that is not the time to be working out your theology or what you believe about God. Listen, when the foundations are crumbling, when you receive that dreaded phone call, when your family is falling apart, when the economy is collapsing, when tragedy hits your life, that is not the time that you decide, can I trust God or not? Is God trustworthy or not? No, like David, you settle the matter and you make this decision to trust the Lord beforehand, before it ever happens in your life. Why? So that you are ready to take refuge in the Lord when times of trouble come. You don't wait for trouble to come and then decide if you're going to run to the Lord in faith or if you're going to run away in fear. Like David, you declare now in the Lord I take refuge. David's statement of trust in the Lord here, it is resolute, it is decisive, but his friends, his counselors, it seems, are telling him something completely different. They're telling him to run for it. Notice their counsel of fear in despair that David now quotes here in verses 1 through 3. He says to them, how can you say to my soul, and now he quotes their advice, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so these friends of David seem to have David's best interest in mind. They seem to be caring about him when they tell him, listen, David, the wicked are going to nail you. Everything is falling apart. And David, your best interest is to hightail it to some remote hideout and just hunker down there in safety as best you can. But notice David's response. In fact, it's his faith response to the counsel of despair. And this should be our response as well. Notice there's three things. This is faith's response. First of all, faith rejects the counsel to flee. It rejects the counsel to flee. Listen, these well-intended friends of David, they were basically telling David, flee like a bird. And flee like a bird to the mountains. But may I say to you, that is rarely the best option for God's people. We don't have to flee in fear. Why? Because we, we can take refuge in the Lord. 
In fact, this phrase here, flee like a bird, obviously it's a metaphor. It's not, they're not counseling David, flee literally like a bird to the mountains. It's a metaphor. And so it's suggesting that it's not talking about physically running away so much as it is metaphorically. In fact, as one author says, we are supposed to read this more broadly as a temptation to abandon the place God has appointed for us because of the onslaught of evil. God has appointed David to be king. His friends counseled him to forget his calling and save himself. At the same time, I also want to make clear for our understanding here this morning that it's not always wrong to flee physical danger from the wicked. After all, if you know the history of David and his life story, then you know that his best friend, Jonathan, actually warned David to flee from King Saul. And David heeded that advice, and and he ran for his life, and he hid for years until the time came for God to appoint him as king. After Paul, the Apostle Paul, if you fast forward to the New Testament, after Paul was saved by God on the road to Damascus, he evaded assassins by being lowered in a basket through the opening in the city wall of Damascus. But understand something. These flights, physical flights by both David and Paul from danger were driven by their faith in God, not their fear of mankind or humanity or the wicked in David's case. And so faith rejects the counsel to flee. Number two, we see that faith rejects the counsel to fear. Now, make no mistake about it. David's life was in physical danger. The wicked, who later on in verse 5, are described as people who love violence. And we already saw last Sunday in Psalm 10 that the wicked often love violence. That is par for the course for them. And so the wicked who love violence were out to get David. That's true. That's real. And then even using the imagery of a hunter with a bow and arrow, David's friends tell him in verse 2, Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And so David is being targeted by assassins whom he cannot see. They're shooting at him secretly or literally under the cover of darkness. And their goal here is to kill the righteous before they can even see it coming. And so it's no wonder then that David's friends advise him to flee in fear. But David's already predetermined his response. He has already determined what? In the Lord, I take refuge. In the Lord, in other words, I put my trust. Therefore, I will not flee, and I will not fear. In fact, it's, it's actually the same response that Jesus told his disciples before sending them out into the world to proclaim the gospel in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Listen to what Jesus tells them. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and Embody in hell. So faith rejects the counsel to flee 
Faith rejects the counsel to fear. And then we see number three here, that faith rejects the counsel to fret. These friends concluded there's nothing left that David can do. So he should just throw in the towel. He should just concede defeat. Hence the hopeless question that they posed to him in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, well, David, what can you do? This is the counsel of despair. David, you can't do anything. David, your hands are tied. David, you're helpless, so you better flee while you can. But that is exactly what the enemy wants us to do, to flee, to fear, and to fret. The enemy wants to get us locked into a syndrome of worry and resignation and hopelessness to get us focused on the crumbling foundations around us instead of trusting in the God who is a refuge in times of trouble. So David's friends advised him to flee, to fear, and to fret. But David's not buying their advice. Their pragmatic counsel runs counter to his faith in God and to his trust in the Lord. And although his friends may be very accurate in their description of the dangers of the wicked, their advice does not take God into account. Their advice to him is based on fear, not faith. And David couldn't believe that they were suggesting this to him, that they were advising him in this manner when he says, how can you say to me? Are you serious? How how can you advise my soul to flee like a bird to the mountains? At the same time, their advice, it actually sounds rather reasonable. But it's in conflict with David's declaration of faith. In the Lord, I take refuge. You say, well, why does this even matter? Why should I care? What's the importance of all this? Well, we should care, and it matters, and it's important because of the very source of this advice, which makes it, in turn, so very subtle and dangerous. This, was, this advice, this counsel was coming from whom? It was coming from his friends, from well-meaning people. It's not coming from obvious enemies of David. And we see this when David's friend says in verse 2, for behold, the wicked bend their bow. So this friend, he is, he's differentiating himself from who? From the wicked. And so this advice is actually coming from somebody who, who, who cares about David. This is not advice of someone who's out to destroy David. They they think they're helping David. And yet, it's basically opposed to faith. And that's the problem with the counsel of David's friends here. It's sincere. It is caring. In fact, it seems to be the only choice that David has. But folks, listen to me. It is also in conflict with David's decision to do what? To trust in the Lord. So before moving on, 
let me just pause here. Let me draw out an obvious but necessary point of application for all of us. Any advice that you receive, any advice you receive calls for discernment. Listen, it doesn't matter who's offering the advice. It doesn't matter how well-meaning your friends may be. If the advice is in conflict with God's word, if it's in conflict with God's will for your life, you cannot follow it as a Christ follower. And we need to know and understand that sometimes the most well-intentioned counsel from the most well-meaning of friends may lead you down a path that's in conflict with God's word and runs counter to your faith in the Lord. The key for David here has to be the same key for us. The key for David is he has already determined who he was going to trust. In the Lord, I take refuge. And even then, let's be honest, it can still be rather difficult to tell the difference between godly advice and ungodly advice. And that's why we need to ask for God's wisdom. That's why we go to him in prayer as we learn in our series in James, that we go to God and we ask for his wisdom and discernment. That's why we need to know God's word to discern the difference between ungodly counsel and godly counsel. This is why, let me encourage you to pray Paul's prayer that he prayed in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Listen to it. Paul says, it is my prayer that you, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless before the day of Christ. So when the wicked attack, when the foundations begin to crumble around you, or I should say underneath you, and everything seems to be falling apart, what are the righteous to do? And David shows us here that the righteous trust in the Lord, who is our refuge in times of trouble. He is our place of safety no matter what is happening around us. In fact, David says he would run to the Lord and trust as our refuge even when all hell is breaking loose, in other words. But why? Why should we run to the Lord as our refuge? Well, David answers that question for us. He tells us why, and it's our second point. It provides the answer. Number two, trust in the Lord, who is our sovereign king over all things. You see, David has one ginormous, one substantial reason for trusting in the Lord. He alone is our firm foundation as our sovereign king over all things. So in contrast to the counsel of fear that David was receiving from his friends, we now hear the very confident answer of David's faith here in verses 4 through 7. In fact, you can begin to catch the contrast 
when the question is asked at the end by his friends in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And David's very first response is what in verse 4? Who does he mention? It's the Lord. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in his heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. So David's friends were focused on who? They were focused on the wicked. David's friends were focused on what the wicked can do, what the wicked are doing. That was their focus. But David here is focused on the Lord and what the Lord can do and who the Lord is and what the Lord can do for David. And what we see here is that this is David's foundation. When the foundations of society were crumbling below him, beneath him, this foundation stood firm. Notice it. The foundation that supports God's people is none other than the Lord, who is the sovereign king over all things. You see, David's friends made a rather serious mistake. The foundation that supports God's people, it was not destroyed. The Lord is the foundation of God's people. Their security forever as the sovereign king. Moses reminds us of this. He said it well in Psalm 90, verses 1 through 2. Listen to what Moses says. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so David's whole focus here is not on the wicked. David's whole focus is on God on the Lord in the second half of this psalm. In fact, God's personal name here, which is translated as the Lord, is repeated no less than four different times in these last four verses. And yes, listen, the reality was for David, just as it is today for us, the foundations of society were crumbling all around David. But not the foundation of the Lord. Therefore, David put his confidence in the Lord, who is the sovereign king over all things. One commentator writes, the central truth of this psalm is that the faithful fix their confidence on the heavenly sovereign and his plans and not on earthly human institutions. So here are three reasons we can put our confidence in God. First of all, First reason is that God rules over all and God sees all from his throne in in heaven. So when the wicked attack the righteous, the fact remains that the Lord is on his holy throne or is in his holy temple. And when the foundations are destroyed, the Lord is still on his holy throne. Now, we might be tempted even now to say, well, how does that help? How can that help? That's just what I was afraid of. The Lord is, he's light years away in heaven. He's removed from us. He's removed from my concerns and what's going on in my life and in this world. He's up in heaven on his throne. He doesn't care what's going on here. So how does this even help us? But that's not what David means when he says 
the Lord is in his holy temple and he is on his throne. This picture does not imply that God is removed from his people, but that he rules over all things. Listen, God's throne is not the place of of inactivity, but rather of supremacy. It doesn't suggest distance, but rather dominance. God's exaltedness in heaven doesn't indicate distance or indifference, but rather activity of ruling over all things. Now, I I freely admit that it doesn't always look that way, does it? Listen, when you you read the headlines, when, when you watch the news, it can seem as if the whole world is spinning out of control. That's that's what it can appear. And it is so easy to conclude that either God is not on his throne or God doesn't care what is happening to his people here on this earth. But when we are tempted to to think this way, listen, the prophet Habakkuk reminds us in chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. And the reason we are silent in his presence is because we are confident in who he is as our God. So be confident here this morning as God's people. Listen, the Lord is on his throne where he rules over all with sovereign authority. And it is from this throne that David says in verse 4, notice it, look at it, that he, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Now, David is speaking in human terms here in reference to God. Where David describes God's close examination of the world. In fact, this word see, it can be translated as as gaze or to, to scrutinize. In other words, it's from his heavenly throne that God is above all and God sees all. In other words, God is paying attention to all things that is happening. Nothing escapes his gaze. Nothing happens that he does not see. Proverbs 15.3 reminds us of this truth about God. It says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so when it seems like God is not doing anything, you can still be confident that the Lord is what? He is, he's carefully watching and he is evaluating everyone and everything that takes place. In fact, according to verse 2, the wicked, they think they can just shoot their arrows in the dark and get away with it. But the Lord, David here reminds us that he sees all at night, and in secret. In other words, the Lord is watching our lives. He knows even our hearts, for the Lord sees everyone and everything. Number two, another reason that we can be confident and we can trust the Lord is because God tests the righteous and he judges the wicked. David says in verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous. Now, I will admit I don't necessarily like that, 
But this testing is for my good, just as this testing is for your good, and ultimately, it is for God's glory. And so God uses the trials in our lives. He uses the troubles in our lives. And specifically here, the trouble and trials of verses 1 through 3 to, to do something, to, to test us, to, and to prove the faith of his people. And to even to demonstrate to those around us that the righteous are genuine, that they are real. Such as when God tested Job. Like a goldsmith purifying gold or silver, God God refines the righteous with trials and trouble for our good and for God's glory. As Charles Spurgeon puts it, the righteous are precious to the Lord. And therefore, he refines them with affliction. Now, this testing fire of God's judgment, though, it is devastating for the wicked. And the contrast is rather striking when David writes in the rest of verse 5. Look at it. Notice it in your Bibles. But, so there you see the contrast with that word but. But his soul, referring to God, hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Alan Ross, who has written a commentary on Psalms here, he provides helpful insight when he says this about this particular verse. He says the word violence refers to a variety of acts of violence, ranging from social injustices to injurious language. The wicked are people who ultimately promote such violence. They might call it something else, shrewd business dealings, social reformation, or even ethnic cleansing. But if it destroys people in the process, it is wicked violence. And David declares here rather emphatically that the Lord hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence. And he hates it with all his soul. And in light of this verse, some of you may need to revise your theological ideas about God, quote, hating the sin, but loving the sinner. Yes, it is very true. God loves, but God also hates. God loves the deeds of righteousness, as he says later on in this psalm. But he also hates acts of violence. And, and yes, we know from Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that in love, God redeems the wicked from their sins. But we also know that God also hates the wicked who continue in their sin. And so God will judge the wicked, and he will do so justly, and righteously. So understand something here, that God's righteous character helps us to understand, and it explains his just judgment. And this justice, listen, it is our comfort. It is actually our hope in a world where the foundations are crumbling around us. Why? Because if the righteous, if we here, those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, if we are to be delivered by Jesus Christ when he comes again, then the wicked must be judged. And that will only happen if God is just. 
if He is holy, if He is righteous. That's why God's judgment is such good news for God's people. Because only, only when God comes again, and only when God makes all things right, can there be peace and can there be rest for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is why David now expresses his desire for God's justice in the form of a prayer here in verse 6. When David cries out to God and he says, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And so David is confident that God will judge the wicked. That day is coming. David's confident about that, and he will judge the wicked if they persist and continue in their sin and reject God as their king. That is judgment for all humanity that continues in that way. And so God's judgment here, David knows, it is not fantasy, nor is it fiction. God has already proven that he will rain down coals of fire and sulfur when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so David prays for God's judgment here on the wicked. In fact, Scripture says that fiery judgment, it is coming again. Peter reminds us of this in 2 Peter 3.7 where he writes the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So right now, while we live today, listen, God's judgment is delayed. We learned this already in previous Psalms last Sunday. It is delayed as God sits on his throne in heaven and as he watches and as he weighs the wickedness of humanity. But it is coming nonetheless. It is coming, which brings us to a third reason to be confident in our God. God promises the righteous will see his face. So David is showing us That from God's perspective, there are only two types of people in the world. There is the righteous and there is the wicked. In fact, I would encourage you to read Psalm 1. Psalm 1 actually sets the tone and the structure for all the Psalms. And there in Psalm 1, you find the descriptions, first mention of the righteous and the wicked. And so those are the terms that are used predominantly throughout the Psalms to describe two types of people in this world. You are either in the group of the righteous or you are in the group of the wicked. We've already seen that the ultimate destiny of the wicked is they will be judged as a consequence for their sin. And this is a very terrifying thought. But don't be deceived. Do not be deceived here this morning. Because this judgment that is coming on the wicked, this judgment is what we, we here deserve as a consequence of our sin. Listen, we, we deserve what the wicked receive in this psalm. Why? Because according to Romans 3.23, all, 
all have what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news is that for those who humble themselves, for those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ, Paul tells us that we are now justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in his son, Jesus Christ. So there is now an alternative destiny to the one of judgment. And that's what David is alluding to here in verse 7. Notice now the destiny of the righteous when he writes in verse 7, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. James Boyce says this about verse 7. What can the righteous do? Well, there is one more thing. David had looked around at the wicked. He had looked up to God. And now he looks ahead to the future, concerned at this point, not with the destiny of his enemies, but with his own destiny and that of all who trust God. In other words, this is the destiny of everybody who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what does David say about the destiny of the righteous here in verse 7? He says that those people shall see or behold God's face. That ought to excite you. That ought to give you hope. That ought to comfort your soul. That ought to do something for you. Because this is David's final answer to times of trouble that we face in this world. For those who know God, those who love the Lord, David is telling us, and he's reminding us of this beautiful promise that we will see God face to face. And David looks forward to that day when he himself will encounter God face to face. Listen, this, this is the anticipation. This is the expectation of those who know the Lord and love the Lord. Many of you know who Francis Slayball was. I could list several other members of our church. And that woman of God longed to see her Lord face to face before her death. It was on her mind. It was in her heart. She talked about it. It was her anticipation. It was her expectation because of the promise of God. Some of you know Leonard Patrick is in hospice care down at North Kansas City Hospital. <laughs> when I was there on, oh, I can't remember this week when I was there, talking to his, her, his wife, Shirley, she told me that she had gone home to get a few hours sleep, and she came back that morning around 6 in the morning, and uh, Leonard was still sleeping, and she was just kind of there, and he woke up, saw her, and said, well, I guess the Lord didn't take me home. He, he, why? Because he, he's looking forward to waking up and seeing his Lord face to face. He's confident of that. He knows that. And he shares the same heart here as David. And so can you, can you imagine what it will be like to see the Lord face to face for the very first time? 
This is what should grip our hearts. This is what sustains us. It is this promise and this hope when everything in life seems to be falling apart around you. And so you have a choice here. You can either focus on the foundations crumbling. You can focus on how bad it is in this world and what the wicked are getting away with. Or you can choose to focus on the Lord who is in his holy temple and on his throne. Again, before we leave, let me just remind us that this is the key. And we see it here in verse 4. For that is where we find the secret to trusting in the Lord in times of trouble. And you say, well, that just seems too simple. But let me remind you, everything depends on your vision. You can either look at the wicked and what they are doing, what they are getting away with at this time, like David's friends were, or you can choose to fix your eyes on the Lord like David did. Listen, despair is managed by keeping the Lord at the center of your vision. And where is the Lord? He's on his throne in heaven from where he rules over all, from where he sees everything happening. So here is the live it out lesson of Psalm 11. As the world goes from bad to worse, don't give in to the counsel of despair. And let me remind you, there will be plenty of people in your life to give you that kind of counsel. Even believers. Because they have their eyes fixed on the wrong thing. And so be aware. Do not give in to that kind of counsel. Instead, you choose now, today, this morning, to trust in the Lord who is a firm foundation for his people. And so when the wicked attack, when the foundations are crumbling, and when everything is falling apart, be confident. Be comforted. The Lord is not only our safe refuge in times of trouble, but he is also our sovereign king who rules over all things. Listen, he, he alone is our firm foundation that will never, ever crumble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our refuge in times of trouble, for being the one to whom we can turn to no matter what the situation may be. And so, Lord, we praise you as our sovereign king who rules over all things. Help us to trust you with all our lives and to apply these truths to our hearts. Lord, may this Psalm of David encourage us as we go back into the world this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.